You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we're getting into a really good conversation with a guy who has been on the podcast several times now, Tom Peplinski, and we're going to talk about his and my annual trail camera strategy Um, because for me, this is the time of year where I really like to go and get the cameras out, get them over mineral stations, and start that inventory for the upcoming hunting season. And uh, he does things a little bit different than me, but that's what today's podcast is all about. We talk about uh, the the overall strategy um, and how we use trail cameras in that strategy as far as, uh, you know, hunting whitetails. Now, before we get into today's podcast, we got to do a little bit of housekeeping and we got to do a a commercial here real quick. So the first thing I want to say is if you haven't visited iowasportsman.com and have taken a look at their website there's a ton of great information on that website right they have a ton of written articles you can actually find this podcast there and uh, it also gives you the option to get the iowa sportsman magazine Uh, there's a little button you can click and you can get a subscription right through the website and uh, just a really really awesome website really awesome magazine with a ton of great content Um, it's it's specific to Iowa, but the principles can be used wherever you're at in the U.S. So if you're listening to this podcast and you live in Pennsylvania, pretty sure you can use some of the principles um, from 
either the the content side of things or the podcast side of things in in your hunting everyday life right your everyday hunting life so uh, just keep that in mind uh, and also if you haven't already please go to Iowa Sportsman uh, Facebook page and just follow along here pretty soon we're gonna have I've, I know I've been saying this uh, a lot but we are gonna have an Instagram page for us to for us to follow along with as well and uh, so just keep an eye out there second the commercial and that is Bondurant Custom Furniture uh, Furniture.com, obviously in Bondurant, Iowa uh, and they're currently running a Memorial Day sale and I know I should have said this on the last podcast but it is running until 6-7 which is June 7th and um, you can save 15% off all orders over $100 just by entering the discount code Memorial 2019. So the word Memorial 2019, and uh, that's going to save you 50%. And if you're not familiar with Bondurant Custom Furniture, you can check out everything on their website, right? Uh, they have what they've done is they've taken whiskey barrels and they turn them into customized furniture. Now you can buy a barrel uh, by itself. You can buy a flower pot, a clock, a bench, tables, chairs, whatever. Uh, if you have an idea, call them up, uh, email them and say, Hey, I'm looking for this. Can you make it out of, uh, out of a whiskey barrel? And they'll probably say yes. Uh, Cause some of the stuff is just really kick ass. So um, go visit bondurantcustomfurniture.com. And now we're done talking. Let's get into today's Trail Camera Strategy Podcast with Tom Peplinski. Well, we are back once again by Tom Peplinski. Tom, if this podcast was a bar, you would have your name on a seat, a permanent seat here now. So that's that's how many times you've been a guest. That's good. I like it. So that's, that's a good thing. No wait, right? No wait for a cold beer. <laughs> yeah how you been man well wet it's been yeah. a little wet so i'm i'm lucky i got my food plots in here like five weeks ago maybe now four weeks ago my spring plots yeah and then since then it's been nothing but rain so yeah. i know that a yeah. lot of guys who plant food plots they're always they always get nervous once they get it, the seed in the dirt if they're even going to have rain and uh it doesn't seem like this year that's been a problem for anybody no, in fact, the opposite. I know my beans, I think I lost probably, and I'm just guessing, like maybe 30% oh, of my beans. Just, uh, I'm guessing they just molded in the ground or, you know, just too much water germinated and died or I don't know. Yeah. I've noticed that a lot of the places around me that have crops growing in the fields right now are well tilled, right? They are uh, well drained. They have, uh, you know, they've been working in the past couple of years of putting drainage uh, throughout the fields. But then I see some other ones that are, are not looking so hot and standing water in them. And that's never a good thing. No, I mean, I don't know the percentage, but down by me, I would say that less than half is even planted. And what's not planted is probably going to have to go to beans. And the weeds are over a foot tall now oh, and boy. standing water everywhere. So, I mean, if it stopped raining today, uh, you know, you're looking at 10 days before I, I'm guessing they could even get a planter in the fields at oh, this point. Yeah. yeah. It's just straight garbage around, around here as well. Um, have you ever lost like whole crops, whole food plots due to, uh, massive amounts of rain before? No, I've lost it to drought though. Lost it straight. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. I lost it. I've lost it to drought a couple of years. Um, and then I had to re, you know, rethink my, my spring planting of either, 
<clears throat> excuse me, of either corn or beans or something like that. I had to rethink it for the fall because of the drought. Right. But right. never, I've never actually lost one because of rain. Gotcha. And like, and like I say, my bean plots are, you know, I lost probably 20, 30% of the seed. They didn't even germinate, but they'll be fine because they'll fill in. So it's not really that big of a deal. So I guess if I had to pick, I'd take a little more rain than, than not. But this year is kind of the exception. It's pretty much a disaster down here. Right. So just right off the bat, when you, when you lose a food plot to drought, um, and you know, it's like, okay, the seeds in the ground, hopefully this rain hits, it doesn't hit, it doesn't hit, just doesn't happen. Um, what, what is your strategy on the back end of that? You know, what are you planning in early fall, late summer to prepare for the deer season? So if, if I'm losing it to drought, that means I, that means more than likely it's been a, it was a spring something I planted in the spring, you know, and then by July or very early August, I know it's, it's beyond, it's beyond salvageable. Like the beans will actually start to yellow or die off and the corn is four feet tall or whatever, and it's going to die. So then I'm, so then I'm just switching those over to a green food source, but those food plots were put in for the grain Mm -hmm. so that I would have like for my late muzzleloader season. Uh... So then I, so then I'm, so then I'm thinking, okay, what can I plant that I can still hunt in December and January? And that's usually winter rye and maybe the uh, brassica varieties that have the bulbs. So like a, a purple top turnip, something like that. Okay. That would be that would be what I'd what I'd plant. I'd till under the beans or till under the corn, and then uh, and then plant. Yeah. Probably those two varieties. Yeah, that's one thing about uh, food plotting. I would say that is that I would feel would be the most frustrating for anybody who decides to, you know, jump into the food plot arena because it's not like setting a tree stand up. You're in 100% control. It doesn't matter if it's hot or cold. You can go out and you can set up a tree stand uh, and plan out your locations. But when you start jumping into things where mother nature gets involved, then I, man, I don't know. I'd be mad. I'd be throwing stuff. Yeah, it's tough, but there's things you can do to can to help yourself. So for starters, if you plant beans early, and then plant them at in narrower rows. So instead of doing like a planter at 30 inches, if you broadcast them or use a planter at let's say seven and a half inches, they'll canopy over much faster, and that'll help you with drought. Okay. I mean, it's a huge noticeable difference between early planted early planted beans in narrow rows compared to late planted beans in wide rows. If you hit drought, no, I'm going to take so, a, I'm going to take a guess on this. Once the canop- it canopies over and there's less exposure to the dirt, it holds moisture in better. Absolutely. You can take a thermometer on a hundred degree day in the middle of a drought and pull, you know, part aside the canopy and stick your thermometer down in there and it'll be in the seventies. Yeah. You know, on the yeah. top couple inches of, of dirt will actually be might even be lower than that yeah but the opposite the opposite true at you know at 30 inch rows if they haven't canopied over yet um and the, the air temperature is you know still that 95 degrees or whatever the soil temperature can actually be above that because it's it's like the roof of your car you know yeah. what i'm saying yeah so that's you can do some things to help yourself cover crops will help you get in earlier and winter rye that's that's like another side benefit of planting winter rye is it's now a cover crop. So the moisture comes out of the ground a little sooner. You're able to plant a little sooner. So there's things 
just it's no different than what farmers do to try and help them cope with drought and too much water and and as a food plotter when you really start getting into it you can you can really do a lot of things that'll help you right. to avoid that right i'm i guess i'm uh fortunate where i don't have to worry about that right now <laughs> yeah fortunate or for me it's fun so i don't yeah. even even on a even on a year where i lose them or something like that the way i look at it is everybody else around me also lost their beans or corn you know because yeah. drought isn't farm specific right right so it's for me it's it's a lot of fun so but so, yeah I, I hear what you're saying if you don't do it you don't have to worry about it either yeah that's right let me ask you this then on on um years where let's say the drought has affected your seed and you've had to go to your backup uh your backup plant like uh, winter rye you said do you notice the the deer visiting those food plots less because it's not the ideal crop that you wanted yeah, I I would say so, um, but but I would also say this: if the reason why I plant corn and beans is because if a neighbor, if a neighboring hunter has corn and beans, standing corn and beans, then when it comes to that late December January muzzleloader hunt, it's tough because that that really will draw a lot of deer onto their property. So I'm planting corn and beans. Simply, and I know this sounds bad, but simply because I have to kind of compete with neighbors who are also planting food plots of that type. Gotcha. But if but if it's droughted out and everybody lost their corn and beans, and now I'm able to put in a brassica plot in winter rye, then I then I also know my neighbors don't have corn and beans. You see what I'm saying? Right. So right. so then so do I see maybe less deer? There, yeah. The answer is there probably is a little less deer because they're. They're probably less fixated on that high carbohydrate corn plot, um, for example. Right. But at the but at the same time, they're not leaving my property per se to go to a neighbor's standing corn because they don't have any either. Gotcha. So, and in fact, I've had a couple of years now where that uh, winter rye and brassica blend actually probably outperformed a soybean or corn plot simply because my theory is the neighbors who had put in grain crops or even farmers that had grain crops, they never replanted. Uh, so I was, okay. so I was, I was the only guy that actually went and spent more money and time and effort to replant. And so now I'm really the only one with any food. Okay. So the opposite can happen too. It can actually gotcha. be really good. And I take it all comes back to about, uh, to the amount of snow or how bad the winter is. Like if it's a mild yeah. winter, they're still going to be evenly distributed or, along the landscape and then if it's a harsh winter like we had this past winter they're going to be concentrated to wherever the food's at so if you have the food you you're sitting pretty yeah yep yep absolutely cool well that's a good conversation about food plots um especially (laughs) especially this time of year uh because of you know everybody's getting into it we've had some difficulties with the weather and whatnot but the reason i brought you on is because i wanted to talk a little bit about trail cameras today I want to talk about how you use them, how I use them, what your strategy with them is and whatnot. Um, so I think the, the, the best question just to start this whole thing off is, do you use trail cameras and how do you use them? Well, I use them a lot. Um, and I have quite a few, I guess, for the land that I have. Um, I don't run them year round. I used to run them year round, but I lost a lot of trail cameras in spring and summer 
um, to things that I couldn't control like ants. Um, so I, I found that the information that I got, you know, let's say like right this time of year, doesn't really do me a lot of good when it comes to harvesting a, a buck that I'm after. Okay. Um, but I definitely run them probably starting maybe late August, maybe, maybe a little earlier than that, maybe August 1st, something like that. Probably around the time when I put in my fall plots gotcha. of brassicas and winter rye and stuff like that, which is usually starting early August. That's when I'll start running, um, my trail cameras and I run them primarily in two different areas. One would be like on a, a food source type. And then the other would be strictly on scrapes. That's how I run. That's how I run my food plots to take inventory and timing and what bucks show up when. And so I use them a lot. Gotcha. Do you ever use a mineral on your farm? No. Um, I, I guess I'd like to say that I would like to use mineral, but I think the state law says you can't hunt over mineral sites. So then you're left with a dilemma of if you poured mineral in a spot to run a camera, right. how far away can you have a tree stand or can you somehow dig that mineral site out so that the it's not there anymore. And so I don't, I just, I got away from it because there's just too much drama over what you can and can't do. And so I, I don't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I I do use minerals, um, and basically I I'll put them out this time of year. Uh, put my trail cameras over top of them, and kind of like you, just use that information to gain. Uh, I get you know get a, a get the tabs on it. What bucks are in the area? What quality of bucks I'll be chasing this fall? Um, get an inventory, so to speak. But you're right. the The law in Iowa specifically, it it's very gray, right? You can't, you can't have a mineral uh, station um, in an area that you hunt, but it doesn't tell you what that area is. Like in Nebraska, it says you cannot hunt 200 yards within a mineral station or a, a, a like a, a bait pile or I guess whatever. You can't do it. In Iowa, it's a it's really gray, and it's upon the discretion of the the DNR officer if something was ever to happen. So for me. I do use mineral, but I use them so far away from where I hunt. It's not even like, I don't know. It, it's not even a question, so to speak. Yeah. And so that's what I used to do. But then I always got into this scenario. It seems like yeah. it always happened where, uh, for whatever reason, where that mineral site was. Now I wanted to get a stand in there. Not, not even because of that mineral. I had nothing to do with the mineral, but, but I was, let's say I was off a little bit with a, with a stand that was far away so I wanted to move like a hundred yards. Then I was thinking in my mind, well, okay, now that's a hundred yards closer to this mineral site that I had in the summertime. And so now I'm thinking, can I really put a stand there? And so now I, I just got rid of it because I, like I, like you said, there's just too much, too much drama. So then I actually thought, well, should I take like a shipping pallet and throw a shipping pallet over top of that mineral site once I'm done using it for camera so that I could explain that I'm not trying to attract deer there. And yeah. I just, to me, it was just too much. Right. <laughs> so I just, I just quit doing it. Right. Gotcha. So you, you stopped doing that. Um, and it sounds like you don't typically put your trail cameras out until August 1st. Is that right? Yeah, that's typical. I mean, if I was going to hunt a new farm, I, I think I would maybe put them out a little sooner just to get a little bit better inventory or where the deer are moving. But, and the only reason why 
I don't. I guess there's two reasons. One, it seems like the information you get this time of year typically doesn't help me all that much. Right. Uh, I mean, that's debatable. Um, but the second re- reason, and really the bigger reason, is I've lost a number of cameras because ant infestations or uh, rain. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, spiders. I had one where spiders got in, made a nest, and corroded the whole electronics on the inside. And so I just, I'm like, well, the risk and reward for doing it this time of year. So I just kind of backed off on doing it this time of year. I guess if for me, if I was going to do it this time of year, it would be more for fun just to see the antler stage growth of different bucks and stuff like that. But when they, when the bucks kind of put on their fall, their fall switch where they move into their fall um, areas, Right. That's kind of when I start like to run my cameras and it seems like the information I get is a lot more valuable leading up to season opener on October 1st. Yeah. So that's, that's when I really start hitting them and it just kind of coincides with it's, it's, I guess it's easy when I'm out with the tractor or whatever, putting in my fall food plots. Well, then that's a good time to hang a to hang a camera. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's crazy because I, love running trail cameras and not necessarily this time of year because I agree with you 100%. There is a shift that happens in the fall. So any pictures before that is just to let you know, like, Hey, this deer is still alive. It, it, especially if it's a deer you've been following for a handful of years. And now he's, you know, he's something promising. He's that, he's that shooter that we all want to go after or it lets you know, like, Hey, that three-year-old that I passed up, last year he's still alive he's a four-year-old now so now he's on the hit list and um just for almost peace of mind if that makes sense sure yeah and i and i try to do the same thing at the end of last season so what i'll try to do is run my cameras later and i know it's probably not as uh probably not as bulletproof as your method of you know locating the bucks and making sure they're back and maybe the next age class but if i run my cameras January, February, March, and then pull them. Um, I can watch these bucks right up to antler shed. Mm-hmm. And then I, and I, and in my mind, I'm thinking they got a pretty good chance. If they've made it, if they've made it up to antler shed, uh, the chances of them being killed by next fall are probably low. It can happen, but yeah. so that's, that's kind of how I do that. And then I'm pretty confident that they're going to make it until the next season. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so if other than, other than inventory, right. Uh, what other reasons do you have for running trail cameras, um, when you do? So in our last podcast, we talked a lot about, uh, the strategy where I, you know, I try to create this bedding to transition That's to right. exterior food source. So my cameras are a lot of my cameras are put on these transition area, small junky food plots where I have my tree stands, where I have a lot of my tree stands and they're easy to check because it's non-invasive because that's how the stand is laid out. We talked about all this on our last podcast. Yep. So then I can, it's a very, it's almost cheating. It's a very easy way of seeing, okay, this buck that I can glass because in the summertime you can actually glass these nice nice deer on these bigger soybean plots and alfalfa fields. And it's an easy way to take, not, not necessarily just inventory, but are they coming through this transition area? So from mid September, right on up till maybe 
oh, I would say mid-October, maybe October 20th or so, a lot of my cameras will be in these transition area food sources just to simply see are the deer, are my target bucks making their way through these transition food sources onto the main food source. I might actually run a, a camera on, and I might be using the wrong terminology, but I might I might run a camera on like a food plot. Um, what do I want to say here? But the setting on your camera where right. it doesn't use motion, you know, so you set it up on your, you set it up on your food source kind of to take a bigger scan of the whole thing. Yeah. Field scan. Can, yeah. Field scans. Yeah. That's yep. it. So I might actually set one or two cameras up on my soybean plot or my alfalfa plot. If that's my exterior, you know, larger food source just to target to see if I can get a four or five or six year old buck that I'm targeting. And then from there I'll back off or actually go in, I should say, and set my cameras up more on the motion on these transition food plots and say, Hey, are they coming through cage fight? Are they coming through the boot? And these are all names of the food plots that I have. And uh, so that's a very good way of locating them. And then, then it seems like by mid October, as soon as the scrapes start to open up, then I'm, then I'm putting them on scrapes. And a lot of time my mock scrapes, or even uh, natural scrapes are still in these transition plots, but I'll just re-aim the camera to make sure that I'm covering that scrape. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you are, obviously a field edge is easy to check with a trail camera, but when you're putting your trail cameras deeper into the timber, one of these transition areas or a pinch point or something like that, how often are you checking those? Um, well, only when I can. So if, if one of these transition areas is huntable, let's say only with a North wind and I'm in my mind, I'm just picking some of these spots. Then I'll only go in there and check it with a North wind. So it, you know, it might be once a week, might be two weeks. It depends on when you get that North wind. Uh, I don't, I don't go in and just check them nonstop because I've had, I have such a history with my farm. I guess that's a good point. When, if it's a new farm or a new area, I think you should probably check them more until you get a better grip and a handle on how the deer are using your farm. Right. Because if you check a camera, let's say, let's just say opening day, October 1st, you check a camera and whatever information you get, you don't check that camera again. And let's say until October 20th, you might miss, you might miss information that's huntable that that camera got for you by if you didn't check it for three weeks yeah for me on my farms I'm, i don't have that because i i kind of know what i'm going to get already i kind of know what to expect and this is just a way to verify you know which travel pattern they're using if they're making it there during daylight hours it's more of a verification of what in my mind i think is already going to happen yeah so i'm able to check them less gotcha if that if that makes sense yeah it does it's it's weird because I think what happens is a lot of hunters, I don't know, I, I, I look at trail cameras as almost a catch-22. Sometimes they're, they're really helpful in, as far as strategy is concerned, and then sometimes they are almost negative to the point where if you're going in and checking them too much, uh, you're putting more additional pressure on an area that ha- already has human intrusiveness. Or, at the same time, a buck comes through, you check a trail camera 
a buck comes through five days ago, uh, and now you, you're focusing all your attention on this particular area on historical data, you know, something that happened five days ago. And I, th- I think a lot of times guys might get caught up in, hey, yes, I have a trail camera picture of him here, but it was five days ago. And five days ago, you know, especially if it's in the rut, that deer could be in the next county. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. So the first the first thing you touched on would be like putting more pressure on the deer. And I 100% agree with that. So people need to be careful when they're putting their cameras out that when they're checking them, they're not basically hunting the deer. Because every time you go in, your scent is blown around and you're making noise and the deer can see you. And if, if you're bumping deer either with your scent or with your noise or whatever, you're, that's like hunting the deer. So yeah. that's not a good thing. So I don't, I don't typically put any cameras that are in this basically kind of like invasive area where there's even a remote chance of me bumping a deer. I mean, I'll, I'll take a chance if I'm hunting maybe once or twice a season or three times a season to, to go to a spot that's kind of pushing the edge of what I feel comfortable with because I'm hunting. Right. So it's kind of a high risk, high reward type of thing. But if, if you're doing this for trail cameras, there's a high risk and zero reward because you're, unless your goal is to simply get pictures of nice deer. If that's, if that's what your goal is to get a yeah. m- bunch of nice pictures, well then have at her. But if you're, if you're going in and you're checking these cameras that are, you know, really invasive to where the deer are bedding and your scent is blowing around and stuff, you're doing yourself a lot, a lot more harm than you ever could be doing yourself any good. So I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to take a moment and break down my trail camera strategy throughout the, throughout the entire year. And I think I've refined it enough to where I know, like, just like you, right. You kind of have an idea of how your farm operates, what the deer are doing at specific times a year based off of specific crop rotations. Like you've been hunting a long time and you know, what the deer are doing. And I feel like I've, I've refined my trail camera strategy, um, to that point as well. So this time of year, uh, I actually feel like I'm behind because typically by mid May, I have uh, my trail cameras out over top of mineral sites and over on some field edges. Uh, this year I don't just because life's been crazy, but I'll have it, uh, I'll have them up in the next couple weeks. And then as the, you know, I'll collect all this data uh, throughout the summer and I'll only check them maybe once a month. Um, maybe once if I, if I set them, let's say I had it out June 1st, I probably won't check that trail camera until mid July. And then once more, probably sometime around the first of September, maybe late August. And when I check that last time, it will also be a switch. So I'll be taking them off the mineral sites and I'll be putting them into historically good pinch points and travel corridors and uh, staging areas uh, just because, you know, as we all know, during that shift, the deer start to go back to nocturnal patterns, right? And they, I don't know, they they just shift, right? They become hard horde and then they become a whole different creature. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then from there, then I'll have a couple that I have that I've never had out the entire summer. And as I'm walking in the farm and walking the field edge, if I see a, a really good scrape, I'll pop one up on a scrape. Um, but 
nothing nothing too complicated quite yet. Now, as the hunting season rolls around, that's when I start playing trail camera uh, bingo. Basically, I'm moving I'm moving them all around, and uh, you know, oh, I've I've seen from the stand a big shooter buck, or I have another trail camera um, in in an area that picked up that got a picture of a big shooter buck. I'm taking all my trail cameras that I have access to that are easy, can be easily moved. Or if I have any left in my truck and I am bringing them in on that area. And then during the hunting season, I'm checking those cameras just a little bit more, uh, because I want to see where this deer is coming through. And basically I just, um, I've heard this term used before, so I can't take credit for it, but you cast a big net and then when you get a hit somewhere, that net becomes smaller and smaller and smaller until, you know, hopefully you're getting trail camera picks of, of the buck that you're after every single day. And at that point it becomes the chess match of tree stand location, right? And, and you, you know, where the deer's coming out, you just have to intercept him. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that that would be a, a solid strategy for game cameras. Yeah. Yeah. The only, the only reason I leave, the only way I leave my trail cameras out all year round these days, uh, is because I forget about them and, uh, which really sucks because I wish I could gather information all the time, but I've had in the last set, last three years, I've had seven trail cameras stolen. And, oh boy. Yeah. And you want to talk about something that pisses a guy off that, uh, and he starts acting like a kid and stomping his feet and cursing and all this stuff. It's when someone messes with my trail cameras and they've cut bolts, they've cut down trees that they were on to get, uh, to get to them. So now it's almost like I don't, I don't want to use trail cameras in those areas anymore, be, but that's where the deer are at. And it, it, oh man, I don't know. I could go down a rabbit hole with that. Yeah, I, I guess I can honestly say I've never had a trail camera stolen ever. So I, I'm doing I guess I'm doing good because I hear a lot of people saying <laughs> that they, that they have that. Yeah. So, and I've run them on public ground too. I just, yeah. I've never had one stolen. So yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm pretty lucky there. Let, let me ask you this. You know, you talked about your, your, uh, trail camera locations into October. Um, how does that change once the rut hits and you're starting to hunt real heavy? So, yeah, I, so I guess I'm a little bit like you. I start out on food and I start out on these transition food sources. And then mid October, I, I strictly run scrapes just about everything I have would be on a scrape with the exception of maybe I would put one on a food source. If I'm, if I'm trying to, you know, capture still a, a bed to feed pattern of a buck or something like that. But otherwise everything is on scrapes. Gotcha. And then it seems like they'll stay on scrapes until, probably the end of November. So probably, probably the whole archery season I'm on scrapes. And then at, at that point I will transition just about everything I got back on food sources and I'll start getting ready for that muzzleloader season. And I'll, and that's, and that's, that's when I really start using a food plot scan mode or whatever it's called. And I'll, and I'll start seeing which bucks are using which, um, big food source and where are they entering? And, and then from there, if I want to put a camera that's, you know, kind of on that trail or on that draw leading out to that food source, I'll do that. But primarily it's food and then on scrapes and then back to food. 
And then not that, not that your strategy is wrong, but I don't, I don't move my, my cameras around a lot, but maybe that's because I have a bunch of them. So I don't, I don't really have to move. You know, if I only had one or two cameras on 120 acres, let's say, and I picked up a nice buck, then I'd be tempted to try and, and figure something else out. But I have all these transition plots covered. I have all my fence jumps covered. I have pretty much every draw covered. So I have an inventory of, of what's there without moving cameras around. Yeah. The only, the only problem I get into is if you get a, a wind direction that's, let's say, out of the south for 10 days in a row, and I need a north wind to go into a certain area because I don't want my scent blowing around. It's I'm I'm ten days old on that data. Yeah. But having said that, I'm familiar familiar enough with my farm or farms that that doesn't seem to hurt me all that much because I I do think that that's a big mistake that hunters make is they put a lot of pressure on the on the deer herd with cameras. Yeah. I'd like I would like to mention one thing, <laughs> and I've I found this over I mean ever since I've been running trail cameras is you think that by having cameras out on scrapes and trails and draws and fence jumps that you just get all these deer. So like you said, you're, you're watching a four-year-old buck all last year and maybe you were trying to get him and, and you didn't. So now he's five and you didn't pick him up all summer on minerals and you didn't pick him up all fall. I would definitely say that that doesn't mean he's not there. I've, I can give, story after story uh if we were sitting around a campfire right now dan i could get into them all but i can't count how many times we've written deer off yep and then all of a sudden on thanksgiving they show up and they're on and they're on a camera and you get two three pictures of them and then they're gone again so whatever happened maybe they maybe they shifted their their core area within their home range or maybe because of hunting pressure they shifted maybe a different mature buck that was three and now in four and five is more of the dominant buck in that area. So they moved out to a different area, maybe because of high social stress, because there's too many does on your farm. They left, which is something I see over and over again. Yeah. But if you got, I mean, just imagine, just imagine having a hundred acres and three game cameras. There's no, there's no guarantee that you're going to get every buck and every deer that's on that that's on that property just by having a camera over a couple of scrapes. Right. I agree. Uh, and I'll, t- I'll share my example. Uh, so, you know, I said I had a couple of trail cameras stolen. So I had a trail camera last summer over top of a mineral station, uh, you know, getting all the Intel of what, what deer are, you know, currently in the area, what made it through winter and whatnot. But I also had a trail camera pointing down at that tra- trail camera to try to catch the guy, who has been stealing my stuff. <laughs> and so when I took that, those two trail cameras down at the end of the season, I, I was, I checked the one that was over the mineral station first. And I was like, man, this big buck showed up one time, but then he disappeared through, you know, for the next couple months. And I was like, man, why, why did he just show up one time? Well, then I checked the trail camera in the, uh, in the tree and this buck actually showed up in the area 10 times but the other nine times he walked behind the the trail camera that was on the ground and didn't visit the mineral station so he was still in the area 
but he didn't show up. So that tells you right there, trail camera information is awesome, but it's not set in stone. That's, that's two things. That's unbelievable. That yeah. even happened. And then yeah. the second is, yeah, that's just more, that's more proof that don't think that that's gospel mm-hmm. because you have trail cameras. All it's just not. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a great tool. So I, I got to ask your opinion. I, a friend of mine stopped over the other day and we were sitting on my porch and we were just BSing for a couple hours. And he swears, he swears up and down that if you put your trail cameras at, you know, convenient level, three foot level for us and pointing them, you know, at a scrape or a mineral lick that there's mature bucks that are going to come in and get their picture taken once. And then they'll never come back again because that, that camera bothers them and they're disturbed. And I look at that and I'm like, eh, I, I don't know if I, I can't say that I disagree with that because I don't know. Right. But, but yet it seems like the, the, the data that I collect and the pictures that I collect don't necessarily support that. So, I'll, you know, what is your opinion on that? Yeah, that's a good question because I've, you know, for every example that I give you, of maybe why it would spook a deer. I can give you the opposite example of how a deer will stand in front of a trail camera. Uh, You know, let's say there's two six-year-old bucks. One gets its picture taken uh, or it smells the trail camera and it was just recently and it hadn't rained yet or whatever and there's scent on it or maybe it's a flash trail camera with and it flashed and he got spooked and he ran away. I could give you another example of how the same age class deer uh, stood in front of that trail camera 10 days in a row, getting his picture taken with the same trail camera, right? Flash or scent or whatever, and it didn't bother him at all. So it's, again, I think it all kind of comes back to the personality of the deer. Some, some deer spook easily than others. And, you know, I think it's just you run that risk if you're going to do trail cameras and you're going to run that risk that, hey, even something as simple as going and checking a trail camera could negatively affect the pattern of, let's say, a target animal. So yeah, that's why. And, and that's one thing I've <clears throat> noticed over the years is the more I check my trail cameras, the actual less pictures of big bucks that I get or mature bucks that I get. So that's why I'm only checking them a couple times a summer. Right. And then as the deer start getting dumber and dumber closer to breeding season and they're making more mistakes or they care less about human scent in certain scenarios that, that I can be a little bit more aggressive in checking them. However, I, you know, I've done the same thing where I've had three days of pictures coming through this transition area of a buck. I check it and the next, it took him five days to return there. Now, maybe he got on a, on a, a doe, maybe he didn't, but he didn't come back through that transition area again. And maybe it was me or maybe he was walking behind the camera. Who knows? Right. There's so many, there's so many variables. Yeah. So my experience has been that the cameras just don't bother them. Um, I think you're right though. I think in the, in the past when the only, now I'm going back 20 years, but in the past when the only option you had was a flash camera that made a loud click and a, and a noise and stuff like that. But today I just don't see that. And I'm not saying he's wrong because maybe he had that experience with a certain buck, but I just don't see that. In fact, some of my, I mean, heck, 
probably the majority of my cameras are on homemade um, stands that I made out of rebar mm-hmm. that the camera sits right out in the open too. I don't, it's not even on a tree and I'm just not having that problem. I just thought I'd bring that up today yeah. because he's, because he swears by it. So then the, the next question I had for him was, you know, how, how often are you checking it? Show me your, show me your entrance and exit when you're checking it and yep. where the wind direction is. Yep. And he, he couldn't get, he couldn't give me an answer. <laughs> so that makes me wonder that if it's not the camera and it's not the human scent and bumping the deer and stuff, and that's got more to do with the, the lower amounts of activity and stuff than the camera itself. But it's, right. it's one of them things where it's hard to, you know, have a scientific study on whether or not these cameras are, are doing it or if it's our human scent. And I guess the takeaway from all that is just to be careful and leave the least amount of human scent you can. If, I guess if you have an opportunity to camouflage your, your camera, you know, and hanging on a bigger tree that can't hurt, you know, maybe it's not necessary, but it surely can't hurt and make sure you're checking your cameras when it, when you can get in there. Yeah. A lot of guys uh, will take that extra step and they'll uh, spray down with scent killer on their boots or they, they may treat going and checking a trail camera, just like going to hunt. So they have a whole scent, routine they'll wash their hands um, they'll spray down really well they'll wait for the right wind direction or they'll wait for it to rain and they'll go check trail cameras on a rainy day to kind of kill all that scent but um the question i wanted to ask you was i there's certain scenarios where i feel that people rely on trail cameras too much do you feel that maybe trail cameras are, are kind of killing woodsmanship? Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things that we can buy today that's killing woodsmanship. Yeah. So in, in trail cameras and I'm pretty opinionated on this, so I don't know how much you want me to get in on it, but I think there's a lot of things that modern technology in the hunting industry is doing And I'm not saying it's their fault because if I came up with some new invention that would help hunters and I can make some money on it, I'd, I'd be all in too. So I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but there's a lot of things that are out there besides cameras that are, that are killing woodsmanship and cameras is definitely on top because people, it's just, it's almost too easy. I mean, the the cameras now they have cell, we have cell cameras, so you don't even have to check them. And then they got, um, I don't know if we can use brand names or not on, on your podcast, but I, there's one now that you can put out, you know, let's say a dozen cameras and then you have one camera that's real easy to check. And then all those dozen are downloading basically yep. their cameras to that dozen. And, yep. and this is all, this is all stuff. Don't get me wrong that I look at and I say, that is phenomenal. That is, that's awesome. But at the same time, I don't have any of that stuff because at some point for me, it's like, when does it become too easy? Yeah. When, when does it, when does it become where we're no longer looking at tracks and we're using our, our eyes, you know, spotting in August and September, the way we used to Yep. instead of using cameras. So at some point, and that's a personal choice for everybody, but at some point, I think you're a hundred percent correct that people are relying on cameras because you, maybe they've lost the, they've lost the woodsmanship and being able to tell a, a, a pellet from a, a mature buck compared to a fawn and a track and yep. 
a stride, a stride in some shallow snow of a buck compared to a doe. And a lot of people just don't have that, that woodsmanship anymore because they're relying 100% on trail cameras. And I think that's a mistake. Not, not only is I, do I think it's a mistake because we might lose some of that, some of that, uh, knowledge that we can pass down to the next generation on, you know, how I was raised when I, when I started hunting, because we didn't have none of this technology when I started hunting. So we're losing some of that. And then the second thing is that at what point is it just, is it too much? Right. You know, I mean, the deer's, the deer's senses is, is what they have and we're a predator. And at what point do we eliminate basically all their, all their uses of their senses. And now it's almost like we have an unfair advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So it's crazy because, um, at that point you can start getting into the conversation of, Hey, does a long is long range shooting, you know, ethical, uh, is a deer can't use its, you know, uh, senses, you know, from three or 400 yards away, 500 yards away, yep. whatever yep. you can start talking about. I mean, I was talking to a, a trail camera manufacturer as recently as like three months ago. And he made a good point when he said anything that your trail, your phone can do a trail camera sh- is going to be able to do here pretty soon. Oh, so, yeah. you know, just like security cameras in your home, you can log on to your phone and you can see what is going on in your home right now. I would say probably in the next year, there's going to be trail cameras that you can check like a security camera. So if you have a food plot out there or in a pinch point, you can sit and you can watch what's going on in that in from that trail camera. And just imagine you're sitting there, you're watching on your couch, you're watching basically a live feed of the woods a shooter butt comes through. You're like, okay, I know exactly where he's going. He, you, you counter that by going to the next tree stand or where you think he's going to be in 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And then guess what? Now all you're doing is showing up to shoot an animal. So, <laughs> right. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you can, you yeah. can just go off the deep end with thoughts like that. Yep. Absolutely. I, there was a guy that hunted with me last year and, uh, he had a cell camera. He had one. And so that was, that was an example, Dan, of where I actually put a camera where I never would put one. Yeah. And I put it back in, in toward the timber in one of my like funnel areas that I would never run a camera there. Yeah. And I go in there to hunt when the wind is perfect and everything, but I would never run a camera there because I, the only time you can check it is with a Southeast wind and it's gotta be breezy and et cetera, et cetera. But I put that, uh, trail camera in there that worked off a cell and it was amazing the number of nice bucks that that camera got and daylight, daylight pictures and just the movement, but we never had to check it. So it's, it was pretty cool. But at the same time, I was thinking, is this cheating? You know, and I, we used it, but at some point, you know, that's, that's, I guess to each their own, but there's certain things that I don't do that I think are just, I'm like, yeah, even if it works, I'm not doing it because it's, it's to me, it's too much. I, I still have to put in my time and do the things that, that I think that I have to do to, to harvest the deer. And, you know, some people are probably listening to this thinking, yeah, but you put in food plots and that's cheating. And I, and I get all that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to cast a stone on anybody. That's Absolutely. why it's a, it's a personal choice. And, and that's why I'm saying for me <clears throat> so far, I've, I've selected to use trail cameras that are kind of limiting in in their ability and, 
and maybe even using any trail cameras is too much, but yeah. that's definitely a, that's definitely a conversation of, of, uh, they do us more harm than good. Well, the technology is going to be there, like you said, or maybe it's there already where they probably aren't going to do you any harm because you're not even going to have to check them anymore. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and I tell you what, like you said, to each their own. If you like running trail cameras, run trail cameras. If you like planting food plots, plant food plots. If you like bitching about how there's too much technology in, in hunting today, <laughs> well, then guess what? This is America. You can bitch all you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how I look at it. That's so when people get into it, I'm like, hey, do what works for you. And if and if you're doing all of it and none of it's working for you, then you're probably doing something wrong too, you know? That's right. So that's right. hey, one I wanted to I wanted to share one other kind of a tip gotcha. that I that I've been doing for like maybe fifteen years now. Okay. And it's been that time period when I run my cameras on scrapes. So a lot of times if you're in and for me it's these little interior transition plots. But maybe they, you know, for a lot of hunters out there, maybe it's just a one acre small food plot or what have you. And if you're in an area and you want to run your cameras on scrapes and maybe there's five scrapes on this one food plot, for example, what I've been doing for about 15 years is I've been going in when I plant these food plots or, or kind of early, some, sometime early and I'll see where last year's scrape was or last year's licking branch. And I'll pick the one scrape that I want to run my camera on because maybe it's facing north or there's going to be the least amount of chance for false triggers because of wind blowing or whatever. The one, the one camera where I want to run on a scrape and I'll eliminate all the other scrapes. So I'll, I'll cut the licking branch completely off okay. on all these other areas. So on this one little food pot for me, right where I want to run my camera there is only one option for the deer if they if they come into that area and they want to scrape that's a smart move man i've never thought it's, about that before yeah and since i've been doing that my i guess what do you, i want to say like accuracy my accuracy and the percent efficiency of the bucks that i'm getting on that little food source or on that field edge or whatever has probably four or five times higher than when there used to be five or six scrapes in that same area. Because what I noticed on Stan, the reason I started doing this is you'd see a three-year-old buck or a four-year-old buck or something come into this small food pot or work in this edge of this cornfield. And they're not hitting all eight scrapes. They might hit three of them. They might hit two of them. And then they're dipping back in the woods or, or doing whatever. So I started thinking to myself, well, if, my camera was down on that fifth one and the third scrape is where he stopped and cut back in the woods that I'm not getting them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So 15 years ago, I just started doing that. I just started eliminating all the, all the licking branches. So there's just one scrape left for the deer or a lot of times it's, it's my mock scrape yeah. because that's, that's precisely where I want it. And so I'll eliminate all the other licking branches and it seems like the efficiency of my cameras. It, it, I, I shouldn't say it seems like, the efficiency of my cameras is phenomenally higher than when there was more options for the deer. Yeah, man, that's a great tip. I'm going to start doing that. Thanks, man. It really, it really does work. I, I don't know if you can do it, you know, in right, right at the prime time or whatever. So I try and go in there and really kind of hack them off early. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it really does work. That's awesome. That's a great way to end a podcast with a, a good tip from Tom Peplinski, man. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to start doing that. 
And that brings us to an end of this podcast, man. Uh, really appreciate it again hopping on. And uh, me and you will have to uh, share some trail cam picks this year once we start getting them. All right. It's been a pleasure once again. Just want to send a big thank you again to Tom for hopping on the podcast basically whenever I ask him, and it's all on short notice, so huge thank you for your flexibility. Uh, huge shout out to Bondurant Custom Furniture. Again, BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Go check out their website. Uh, huge shout out to everybody who has taken time out of their day to download and listen to this podcast man we really appreciate it so um if you if you'd like please go to uh, facebook and follow along uh, to the uh you know the all the social stuff that we're doing uh, follow along there and subscribe to this podcast and you can do it through the sportsman's nation or you can do it on the standalone feeds all you have to do is go to wherever you download your podcast and type in iowa sportsman it's going to pop up hit the subscribe button and now you're automatically going to get this podcast so uh, be sure you're doing that other than that i hope everybody has a great weekend hopefully it stays a little bit drier Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm sick of this rain. So have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week.